Father, thank you so much that um, your grace is enough. And thank you that we can look to you because our help comes from you. And so this morning we wait on you. Some of us wait on you in the middle of a really good time in our lives. And, and Lord, especially when we're in good times, we tend to take it on ourselves. But this morning we wait on you. And there are those of us, Lord, there are quite a few in our number who have physical difficulties and health difficulties. And so this morning, we wait on you. And Father, those of us who have financial difficulty, we wait on you. You are our hope. You, strength comes when we wait on you. And we confess that we have taken it up ourselves. We've taken up our own cause. We've tried to make it work ourselves. We've tried plan B and C and D. And today we say, your grace is enough. We wait on you. In the strong and mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, good morning, Gateway. Good morning. I hope you guys have been enjoying this summer series. It's devoted to studying the life of David. I thank you for being here this morning, and uh, we're going to have Alex lead us and teach us this morning. But I just want to do a quick recap of what we've been seeing, at least some of the things that I've seen and I've benefited from, even though I've been in the series, but I've learned a bunch as well. The series helped us to really take a look at what a devoted life looks like. David, who is probably one of the most instrumental characters in Israel's history, he lived a very devoted life. Some of the lessons that we learned was how important obedience was. We talked about how the sovereignty of God was important and that we need, needed to maintain the proper perspective with that fact in mind. But, you know, one of the things that really got me was, as we went through the series, it was impressive to me that this devoted life cannot be lived in an isolated manner. You know, David had a great impact on people's lives, but it was amazing to me to see the people that impacted David one of which was Jonathan. Jonathan was a great supporter of David and always had something great for David, but he also encouraged David when things were really tough for him. But last week, we saw how Abigail, who did not know really David, she knew a lot about him, but she was able to help to back David off of something that he was about to do, a murderous attempt for revenge. And today, we've got another lesson. And while we prepare our hearts for Alex, why don't you join me? Father God, we thank you so much for this time that you've blessed us with. I pray, Lord God, that we never grow weary of coming together and hearing from your word. It's the one thing that keeps us safe. It's the one thing that keeps us on course. So as Alex is about to bring this, this word, I pray, Lord, that you anoint him and empower him to communicate effectively. And I pray that you prepare our hearts so that we would hear what you would have to say, but not just hear it, Lord God, that where appropriate, that we might apply it to our lives for your glory and for our benefit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Dean. Hey, how many of you have kids going to school next week or maybe already started? Raise your hand. Tomorrow, yeah, raise your hand. Now, that's fairly subdued. You know, there are a lot of places if I asked that question, there would be cheers. But you guys are smart. You want to kind of keep it under wraps since the kids are maybe sitting with you this morning and you don't want them to actually know how excited you are about them going back. One of the things about this time of year is that it's very easy to see the growth and to recognize the, how quickly they grow up. I had lunch with a mom this week who 15 or 16 years ago was a middle schooler at my church. And I was just so cool to think about how in the blink of an eye, you know, a kid now has a couple of kids of her own. And so we get to see that, how quickly our kids grow and change. Sometimes that happens in our families. There's change that comes very quickly, or it's in, in the work environment where change comes very rapidly. I mean, like, to me, it's funny you think about Blockbuster, and our kids go, what? What's that? You know, somebody this week was talking about VH tapes, and it's like, VHS tapes, and it's like, oh, yeah, 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 VHS tapes. So, you know, things change very quickly, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad, and that is true in the spiritual realm as well. 
And so what we're going to see this morning as we continue this study in the life of David, kind of early years of David's life leading up to his kingship, I give away the punchline in the title. It's devoted or disconnected. And what we'll see in comparing chapter 26 and 27 of 1 Samuel is that in one chapter, David seems to be really on track with God. He is connected. He is locked in. uh, He's trusting God in a big way. Uh, he's continuing this learning curve that we've seen uh, all summer long as he's, he's gone from, you know, battling a giant with lots of enthusiasm and passion and devotion to God, but not a lot of goods to go with it, and how God has been developing him. But then in the very next chapter, he kind of enters a dark period and he struggles. I thought it was funny, a couple of weeks ago, John Malala was preaching out of chapter 24, and he said, gosh, this feels like the same episode where, you know, King Saul is chasing King David, who is going to be the next king. Saul knows that David is the next king. He's jealous. He doesn't want to give up his throne, and he's chasing him out in the desert. And there, actually, that story gets repeated quite a bit in 1 Samuel. What's different this time is that between chapter 24, where Saul is chasing David, And chapter 26 that we're looking at today, where Saul is chasing David, was chapter 25, which we talked about last week. And that's where Abigail, this beautiful and intelligent and God-honoring woman, she steps on the scene and she teaches David a very important lesson related to not killing her idiot husband. And she says to David, you know, basically, if you trust God, he's going to intervene on your behalf. You don't need to fix things if God is on your side. And if you're on God's side, if you make room for him to work, you don't have to worry about your enemies. God will take care of them. And so in chapter 26, he kind of internalizes this lesson. He's more confident, more wise. And his approach to dealing with King Saul is much more reflective of this devotion that has been growing in him. So instead of running from King Saul, or instead of seeing if King Saul comes to him, in chapter 26, David actually heads in the direction of King Saul. So I'm going to cover a lot of ground this morning. I'm going to paraphrase a lot of this. If you have your Bible, you could turn to 1 Samuel 26. If you've got the app on your phone, that'd be great. You could read along. If you don't, then I'd encourage you to take some time this week Scribble down a couple of notes and then go back and read it and see if you can kind of see what we've been talking about here in 26 and 27. So you remember at the end of the last installment, last week's episode, David had married Abigail and, you know, seemed like kind of a happy ending to that episode. In this chapter 26, it starts off with the Ziphites, the people who live in this town of Ziph. They go tattle on David and they go to King Saul and say, hey, David is hanging out in our neighborhood, and I know you're not very fond of him, so why don't you come and get him? They're trying to curry favor with the king. This is the second time that they have turned David in, so probably not on David's Christmas card list. The Ziphites were fellow citizens of Judah. They were Israelites. They were godly people. They kind of would have been David's neighbors, so this was a betrayal. And you would think this would be a disappointment or maybe a cause of depression to David, because he can't shake Saul's pursuit. And Saul has 3,000 soldiers compared to David's 600. So it's a a one-sided fight. But it's interesting because David, instead of running and trying to hide in the desert, he hears that Saul is coming in his direction, and he sends out scouts to find out exactly where Saul will be. And Saul ends up settling, making camp on this small little hill on the edge of the desert. And so David sends scouts, and once he's determined that Saul is actually there, he doesn't just take the word of his scouts, he goes and looks with his own eyes. He wants to make sure that he can see it from a nearby vantage point. Later in the story, we find that he's on a hill, kind of in the distance, overlooking, and he can see exactly what's going on in the camp. And so he's there with some of his closest advisors, some of the mightiest men in his army, some of the the toughest commanders under his leadership. And he asks, who wants to go with me and sneak into the camp? And so right there with him is Ahimelech, the Hittite, and also a man named Abishai, who is David's nephew. And we find out that Abishai is the son of uh, David's sister. And later on in the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, he is one of David's commanders of David's mighty men, his roughest, toughest guys. He's like, you know, this special black ops kind of, you know, really tough guy. And he is not at all afraid of battle. Later, he becomes kind of bloodthirsty. He's fiercely loyal to David, and he's courageous. And so we begin to see here this gutsy, courageous David, and he invites some of his tough friends to go along with him. 
And since he's outnumbered five to one, he doesn't take a conventional approach and, you know, like try to march into battle against King Saul's troops. He takes a different approach. And in this approach, we find what I would call a faith-fueled boldness. I mean, this is pretty crazy when he's talking. He goes, hey, who wants to go with me into the camp of the enemy? It reminds me of Jonathan back in 1 Samuel 14 where he says to his armor bearer like, hey, why don't we just, the two of us, go see if we can pick a fight with some Philistines and we'll see what happens. I mean, maybe God will do something miraculous or maybe we'll get killed. Who knows? But it'll be, it's, it'll be fun. You know, let's see what happens. And so this faith-fueled boldness shows up in David and David decides to sneak into the camp of King Saul under cover of darkness. Now, the way the story is told, you get the sense that at, at his initial plan is we're going to just try to sneak our way in and we're going to be very stealthy. There's high risk here, but we're going to try to get around the sentries. King Saul and his men, they don't know that we've snuck up on them. They don't know whether we're around. Uh, this is our territory. This is not his hometown. This is the desert. We know this area, so we're going to sneak in there. And he's got this bold, creative approach. Well, I kind of feel like most of us tend to be suburban Christians. And I kind of use that term in a little bit of a pejorative way. You know, we, we live in a comfortable place, and we like our life. And I think that attitude can sometimes seep into our relationship with Christ, and we settle for far less than faith-fueled boldness. You know, what we're looking for is 3.7% more spiritual growth, uh, although your individual rates may vary. You know, we, we just want like slightly more than what we had, you know, last year. We want to be a little bit closer to God, and we play it safe. We take on modest spiritual aspirations that are just a little beyond sitting where we are. And we can be comfortable with that when we could be going out on all kinds of faith adventures and trusting God in ever-increasing measure. I mean, it could be with our finances where God is actually calling us to take a bold step and a huge leap of faith. It could be that God is looking at the way that we're kind of hesitant to share our faith, and he's got this incredible experience out there for us, but we're just like, I, I, I don't know, I'll, I'll, I'll wear a Jesus t-shirt. How about that? I'll put a fish on the car, on the bumper sticker. How about that? Is that good? We, we play it way too safe when God longs for us to be on the frontiers of faith. So we read in 1 Samuel 26, just verse 7 through 9, David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abner's his bodyguard, one of his commanders. And Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands, but now let me pin him to the ground with just one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. I don't need a second shot. I can sink this thing right through his skull, and we're done. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Now look, under the circumstances, Abishai's approach makes sense. I mean, this would be a quick end of the matter. For chapters and chapters in 1 Samuel, David has been running from King Saul. This could fix things all of a sudden. David already knew that God wanted to be the next king, so why not, like, speed up the process? I mean, what's wrong in that? But David chose to do the God-honoring thing. He chose an approach that maybe didn't make much sense to Abishai. He let Saul lived because he said it would be wrong to kill God's anointed. The man that God has chosen to be the leader of his people, if God is the one that chose him, then God is the one that's going to remove him from that position. This really feels like David has learned the lesson that Abigail taught him in chapter 25, that he can trust God to take care of his own enemies. And instead of David taking matters into his own hands, God will be faithful to him. So he says to Abishai, look, we're going to let Saul live. And as certain as I am that God is alive, I am certain that God is going to deal with King Saul. It could be that God will strike him like he did with Nabal, who was Abigail's foolish husband. Or his time will come and he'll die of natural causes. Or he'll be struck down in battle. No question in David's mind that God is going to take care of King Saul. So David's handling this situation shows us that he really gets God's perspective, Okay. He had options here, but he chooses to handle it in a God-honoring way. In all of this, David chooses not what will fix his problem as quickly as he would like. Instead, he trusts God to take care of his enemies, and instead of doing what is most expedient or in his own best interest, he does what is in God's best interest, and he trusts God to remove Saul at just the right time 
and in just the right way. And he recognizes that that may make his life more complicated. He may still have to deal with Saul in the future, and that's okay with him. David doesn't know everything about God. David doesn't understand what God is up to. He still has a very limited understanding, but he does know with certainty that God is going to intervene on his behalf if he gives God the room to operate. So David is starting to figure out God's perspective and God's values, and he's aligning his behavior with what God has said. Well, David and Abishai pick up Saul's spear and water jug, and they sneak back out of the camp. I think it's funny that even back in those days, mighty kings carried around their water bottle with them. You know, some of you guys have your water bottle that goes with you everywhere. Yeah, King Saul had one too. So they pick up his water bottle and his spear and they sneak out of the camp. At this point in the story, the writer reveals that God had put all 3,000 men into a deep sleep. So there's this very clear evidence that not only has David been acting courageously and trusting God, but God has been active on his behalf. So chapter 26 also includes this element of God's activity. God's clearly intervened on David's behalf in a supernatural way. This is a a very clear, specific example of God's movement on David's behalf. But beyond this, you get the sense in the whole story that God has been kind of behind the scenes working on David. He puts this idea probably in David's heart that like, hey, David, you can't just go out. I know you're, you know, a guy of the sword, but you guys can't go up against 3,000 people in a direct frontal assault. You're going to have to do something creative. You're going to have to be bold. You're going to have to take a step of faith. You're going to have to trust me. So David has certainly found God putting this lesson from Abigail into his heart, giving God the freedom and space to take action. So God has been at work on David's heart. And God has also been at work just kind of like helping him understand, this is what I'm going to bless, this kind of behavior, these kind of choices, this is what I'm going to bless, and these kind of things are out of bounds. I'm not going to bless it if you take matters into your own hand. I also want to point out that God's activity doesn't mean that David just sits on the sidelines and watches. He doesn't. He still has to take the risk. He still has to sneak into the enemy camp and think through his options, wrestle with fear, and make the right move. So this was a partnership between David and God. It was them working together, and God's activity, almost always in Scripture, is the result of his people working in partnership with him. For me, the realization that God has been at work in a specific situation almost comes later, after the fact. I'm, I'm not a very sharp person spiritually, so for me, it's only when I'm looking back and maybe reflecting on the day, or I'm looking back at the week, or, or it's something like 10 years down the road, and I can see how God used a difficult situation, and he was at work, even though I was convinced I was on my own. I just wasn't aware that he was working on my behalf. And I wish for me that I was more perceptive in the moment, more aware of God's activity in my life and in my ministry. I have a feeling that it would embolden my faith and it would make me more effective and it would deepen my devotion to him. Maybe that's true for you as well. So David and Abishai, they sneak out of the camp and they cross over a little valley and they climb up this nearby hill where David and his troops are kind of watching over this situation. And from a safe distance, David calls out to the army and to Abner, the bodyguard, who was supposed to be taking care of King Saul, and he mentions Abner by name. This is probably in the very early hours of the morning. The sun maybe is below the horizon. Abner hears somebody calling his name, and it's like, wait, wait, who is yelling at me this early in the morning? I'm going to... And he realized, wait, something's up. And he calls out, who is calling to me so early? And David says, hey, Abner. I mean... You're the man. I mean, who in all of Israel is as tough as you? I mean, like, everybody should be scared of you. Uh, But on the other hand, how come you didn't guard the king? How is it that somebody could sneak in and take his spear and his water bottle when you're supposed to be guarding him? And I got to say, that doesn't look really good for you. So Abner is probably frustrated by this, and David really is kind of like tweaking him, I think, and just kind of doing some smack talking to sort of point out, like, hey, tough guy, you just got, you know, taken advantage of there. So at this point, Saul recognizes the voice of David, and he says, is that you, David? And David said, yes, it is, my Lord, but why are you pursuing your servant? What is it that I've done to you? Please listen to your servant's words and consider them. 
So if God has made you angry at me, then may he be satisfied by an offering. I mean, if God is the one that kind of put this in your heart, let's just, we'll make a sacrifice or some kind of offering to God and we will settle things with him. But if it's people around you that have stirred up your anger, then may they be cursed before God because I've been driven out of my homeland. It's almost as if somebody says like, hey, buddy, you go to a foreign land and worship foreign gods. I can't even worship my own God in my own land because your heart has been set against me. So, king, please don't let me die in some other land far from the presence of the Lord. And you don't need to waste your time searching for me. I'm like a flea. I'm a nobody. Why does the king care about me? And Saul responds. And this is Saul, by the way, on a really good day. This is Saul at his best. And Saul, a number of times we've seen here, is kind of like nuts. And he'll get mad and he'll throw his spear at somebody. Here, it's a good day. This is Saul at his best, and he says, wow, I've sinned, David. You know, come back. Join me in the palace. You know, I miss you. You did not harm me today. You could have, but you didn't, and so I'm not going to try to harm you. He makes this kind of pledge, which sounds really good, but he will break it yet again. He's done it several times before. He says, I've been foolish and wrong, And so there's kind of, you know, maybe some satisfaction that David gets from this, that that Saul realizes the error of his ways. David holds up the king's spear, this trophy that he's taken away from the king, and he says, hey, why don't you send one of your young men over here to get the spear? And so Saul sends one of the young men from his army over to get the spear. Uh, This is really significant. This is David, not only when addresses king, he addresses King Saul with respect. He says, I'm your servant. He calls King Saul, my Lord. So these are all terms of respect, and now he's not going to keep what is basically Saul's scepter, the the symbol of his reign as the king of Israel. It's just a little bit sharper than a scepter, but he's giving this back. And you think about the sacrifice that was for David. This is the very spear that Saul has thrown at him on more than one occasion. And so uh, this is David in a very tangible way saying, I trust God with my future, and I'm, I'm giving up this weapon, I'm giving up your reign, I'm acknowledging you're the king, have at it. And so in all of this, David demonstrates immense integrity. I mean, all through the chapter, he's chosen integrity. He acts in a God-honoring way. So he himself chose to go on the mission instead of sending a couple of his soldiers. He stops Abishai from doing what would be dishonoring to God. He doesn't choose what's in his best interest. He chooses to do things God's way. He doesn't overstate his grievance with King Saul. He doesn't treat the king disrespectfully. He returns the spear. In all of these ways, David is demonstrating great integrity. He's acting in a way that honors God. And at the end of the chapter, David says to King Saul, in the same way that I've spared your life, may God spare mine. May God protect me. And then Saul said to David, may you be blessed, David, my son. You will do great things and surely triumph. Again, that sounds like, wow, this is cool. They're reconciling. This is King Saul at at a good time in his life, and he doesn't follow through on this commitment, but he leaves David with a blessing. And the chapter ends by saying, so David went on his way, and Saul returned home. So at this point in the story, we don't really know whether Saul intended to keep his word about not pursuing David, but he ends up with a blessing over David. And just a little side note here, this has been going on for a long time. There's probably been eight or ten years that has passed since David kills Goliath and this point in the story. And no matter how often David proves his loyalty, Saul still pursues him, Saul still hates him, and this situation doesn't show any sign of resolution other than these, you know, brief words of encouragement. I feel like some of you guys are are in situations like that. Maybe it's not literally ten years, maybe it's longer than ten years where you just keep coming back and having the same conflict, the same argument, the same conversation, and you're trying as hard as you can to be at peace with the other person to resolve things, and it doesn't go away. Like David, we have to understand that we live in a broken world, and some of these things are not going to get fixed in this life, but we still choose to live with integrity. We still try to operate in a way that pleases God, and we do everything in our power to live at peace with others. 
All right, so it's on the heels of this really encouraging victory in chapter 26, where David's devotion to God is clearly evident. The story takes an abrupt shift. And I want you to really key in on these changes with David in the next chapter, because it really feels like David is either disconnecting from God or he's drifting away from God. He used to be so locked in on God. And in chapter 27, there's a a pretty serious change in direction. So let's just think about this. So he's frustrated because Saul is pursuing him. In spite of what seems like a pretty good ending to chapter 26, David's looking for a more permanent solution. And so he comes to the conclusion that Saul is going to kill him if he remains in the land of the Israelites. So verse 1 of 27 says, David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So in the original language, the, the phrase is, David thought in his heart. David thought not just with his head, but this was something inside of him, kind of like his gut feel was like, gosh, I don't have a choice. I mean, if, I'm, if I'm in the desert, if I'm in the mountains, Saul has been ruthless in hunting me down. So my only option is to flee into the land of the Philistines. There's no indication here that he asked God what he should do. There's no indication anywhere in this chapter that he prays or he consults with the priest or he does anything to try to get God's perspective on it. So this is David's decision based on his assessment of the situation. And this brings us to the first contrast we see between this chapter and the one before. In the chapter before, David has God's perspective, but here he relies on his own perspective, David's perspective. I mean, this is pretty remarkable because David, remember, steps onto the scene fighting Goliath, who is the champion of the Philistines. And he defies Goliath, and he shouts in the face of this giant. Here's this little kid, a teenager, yelling at a giant, saying, my God will strike you down. And now he's turning to the king of the Philistines for refuge. And he's going to pledge his loyalty to the king of the Philistines This is David's perspective. There's nothing wrong with David evaluating the situation and reflecting on his options and making a decision, but what we see as we work through this chapter is David is relying only on his own perspective, his own capacity, his own capabilities, and he decides to go with his gut. And we'll see in this chapter and in the chapters that follow that this is not a course of action that really serves him well. I think this is a huge problem for many of us. Even though we consider ourselves Christ followers, there are maybe compartments in our life where we, you know, we think about God on Sunday morning. We think about him, you know, when we start our day maybe with prayer. But then we go to the office, and because that's our environment, I don't know if it's like, well, God, you know, I don't want to bother you. You're running the world. I've got it here. This is my domain. I know what I'm doing. I don't need your help. And and we operate as if God is not in the picture. We base all of our decisions and our actions on our own perspective, and we miss out on what God could add to the situation. Or maybe it's because we're overwhelmed emotionally, or we're frustrated, or we're angry, or we're disappointed. And it seems like God is not working on our behalf because we don't see on the outside, at an exterior level or surface level, what God is up to. And so we just assume, well, he's not working on my behalf in invisible ways then. And, and he's not working according to my time frame, so I'm going to take matters into my own hand. Sometimes we go with a hybrid model where we ask God to bless our plans. God, I know I probably shouldn't handle it this way, but just help me to get through this day and not to be discovered, and I'll, you know, I'll be better tomorrow. All of those are, are ways in which we're relying on our own insight, our own perspective, and overlooking God's. So David and his 600 men and all the members of their families, men, women, children, they go over to Achish, the king of the land of Gath, which is where the Philistines are. This is the territory to the west of the Israelites, kind of along the Mediterranean Sea. And David goes to the king, and when King Saul hears that they've settled in the Philistine territory, gives up pursuing David. And I'm thinking David probably is going like, wow. This is cool. I made the right move. You know, I went to the Philistines, and now the king is not pursuing me. We can settle things down, and I'll be safe. So David gets what he wanted. 
And after all, the results, I mean, that's what matters, right? The end justifies the means. Well, this is a, a pretty common approach in many arenas of life, especially for those of us in America, this pragmatic sort of approach, but it points to a second shift in David's behavior in this chapter. Whereas in the chapter before, he had this faith-fueled boldness, David is replacing it with what might be called a desperate pragmatism. So it's pragmatic. It's very practical. He's, he's going for the results. How do I stay safe? But what drives that is his desire to survive, just to get by. Now, I'm a fan of pragmatism. I, I mean, I just, I think unless something works, unless it's practical, and that's why I love being a pastor, because I'm convinced that this book is eminently practical. I'm convinced that following Christ opens up a world of blessing and clarity about life that you can't find without him. So I, I think faith in Christ is very pragmatic. But here, this pragmatism that David seems to be developing feels like it's based on desperation. It's not energized by his relationship with God. He's just trying to do anything that will relieve the pressure. He's looking for the safest, least risky, lowest cost approach to avoiding Saul. And if it comes at the expense of integrity or honoring God or staying true to his identity as a servant of the living God, then he's willing to make that compromise. Now, if we're really followers of Jesus, then we don't have the freedom to simply pursue what suits our purposes. We have to be concerned not only with the outcome, but we have to be concerned with how we get to the outcome and the process that gets us to the goal. And there are times where the process is actually more important than the outcome. Would you rather have your child get an A on their exam by cheating or get a B on their own? And that's God's heart for us. He wants us to get to the right spot, but in the right way. There are times when we don't get a win, but the way we play the game says so much more about who we are and who we follow than what the ultimate scorer has to say. This part of the story points out another subtle shift in David, and this time it's his identity. In In the chapter before, he's talked about, I'm the servant of King Saul, and by implication... Since Saul is the representative for God's people, he's saying, I'm a servant of the living God. Here, he pledges his loyalty to the king of the Philistines. So he's trading his identity for security. King Achish gives David and his men the town of Ziklag. They originally settled in the capital city. David goes to the king and says, look, I'm just your servant, so why don't you give us one of those outlying territories? We'll get out of your hair. You know, it's kind of crowded in the city. We're kind of country folks, so give us one of those cities. So Ziklag had been originally a territory held by the people of God, and then the Philistines conquered it. By the time David gets it, there's not much left of it. It's kind of like a ghost town. But he and his family and his men settle there, and they live there for 16 months in the land of the Philistines. And the story goes on that David and his men begin to attack and plunder some of the nearby settlements. The idea for someone like David is that's how he makes his living. That's how he gets stuff and food, and that's how he meets the needs of the men that he's leading. So the writer of 1 Samuel says that David attacks and plunders the Geshurites who live kind of uh, along the border of the Philistine territory, and then the Gerzites and the Amalekites. They're an old foe of the Israelites. They've been at war with the Israelites for years. So David is attacking kind of people that are the enemies of God. Many of these people were left over during the conquest of the promised land. The people of God were supposed to drive out all of the foreigners that lived there when they entered the promised land. But they disobeyed God. And in pockets of places, they left the indigenous people there and just said, well, it's kind of too much work and I don't feel like it. So uh, they were constantly fighting these people that they were supposed to have driven out hundreds of years before. And so David probably... God using him behind the scenes in a way that he didn't realize. God is using David to push these heathen people out of the promised land. Well, what David tells King Achish about his conquest is that, oh yeah, yeah, I'm attacking people of Judea and and Saul's people, and I'm, I'm trying to attack the Israelites and their allies. And so he was lying to King Achish about who he was really attacking. 
And whenever he attacked a settlement, he would kill every man and woman and take all of the livestock and clothes and anything else of value so that he could plunder them. And that provided for his people, and it gave him something to pass on to King Achish to show his loyalty. And David did not tell King Achish that he was attacking the enemies of Israel. He made it sound like he was attacking Achish's enemies. And so he kind of reports back a falsehood to the king. 1 Samuel 27.11 says, He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, which was the capital city, because he thought they might inform on us and say this is what David did. He was worried that any survivors of his conquest would reveal to Achish that he was taking care of God's people and kind of fighting the enemies of God. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. So to keep Achish from finding out what's going on with him, he turns to deception. In chapter 26, he used to be a man of integrity, but now deception is kind of the dominant attribute that shows up in this chapter. Later, when David becomes involved with Bathsheba and needs to cover his tracks, it might be that the lessons he's learned about covering up his deception by killing people, maybe that's where he gets the idea to get rid of Bathsheba's husband. This chapter ends with a helpful summation, and it basically says that Achish has come to trust David, and he's really happy that David is among him. I'm sure he sees the strategic value of someone that knows the royal family, of somebody that knows the territory, somebody that knows King Saul's fighting tactics and who the leaders in his army are. He is an insider who has turned and become a follower of Achish, and Achish is really happy about that. He believes that David has become so despised by the people of God that he will be Achish's servant for life. It's kind of funny that most translations in the last verse say he's become so odious to his people or so obnoxious to his people that David will be my servant for life. In the original Hebrew, the word actually means stink. And so Achish is saying, David has become so stinky that he's going to be stuck with me forever. He's going to be my servant. And he's quite happy about that. Now, when you read through chapter 27, when you look at it as a whole, there is not a single mention of God. There's no suggestion that God is at work in the background, positioning people or orchestrating circumstances. In fact, it's pretty clear in chapter 27 that God is not in the picture at all. So chapter 27 is all about David's activity, not God's activity. It's about David trying to fix the situation with his own efforts based on his own perspective and insight, his own capabilities rather than relying on the resources of God. Now, at this point in the story, if this was the end of the book, you could say, well, hey, it seems to be working for him. That's part of the problem. For a time, we may choose to do things our own way and fix things under our own steam, and it may get us down the road a couple of miles But over the long haul, that sort of approach is not going to serve us well. And we'll find out starting next week. You have to come back to hear about how this story unfolds. This strategy is not going to work out very well for King David either. Let's look at this comparison one last time. Just kind of so you can see how these two line up. In chapter 26, David is seriously devoted to God. He's looking at God's perspective. There's this faith-fueled boldness. There's integrity. God's activity. But then in the very next chapter, David changes course and he's looking at his own perspective. It's a desperate pragmatism. He relies on deception and it's all about David's activity. God's not even in the picture. I think the the thing that I want you to wrestle with this morning is this is how it works for us too. I mean, one day we may be fully devoted to God. We're walking with him We are tuned in. We're looking for his activity. We're clearing space for him. We're trying to do things with integrity. And the very next day, circumstances may be such that we disconnect or we back off. We drift in our relationship with him. Maybe we don't like the circumstances. Maybe we're under pressure. Maybe we just don't know what to do. And instead of staying close to God, we disconnect and we back off. We aren't immune from the struggles. And every day... We are faced with a choice. Am I going to lean in the direction of being devoted? Or am I going to disconnect and try to handle this on my own? As a church family, I'm just thinking about this. I don't know. You've probably heard we're building a building. Hopefully, God willing, a year from now, we're going to be in our new building. And up till this point, with the exception, there, there are a handful of people for which this process has been 
immensely stressful. Uh, There are a handful of people who have done such incredible work and made such a personal investment in this process. There are days when their lives have been miserable. But for most of us in the congregation, this has been like a relatively pain-free process. I mean, there's been a lot of, woohoo, yay, we're building a building. Hey, we raised this much, all right, woohoo. And, and we really haven't run into real hardship. And I think it, you know, it's just, just based on experience in life, I think it's unlikely that we're going to get to the finish line without some obstacle that arises or a problem that will come up. And the question is, are we going to respond when that comes as people who are devoted to God, who will say, wow, that's a lot of money, or, oh my gosh, we got to blow up how much rock, or, you know, who knew that was going to happen, or, you know, are, are we going to be people of prayer? Are we going to create time and space for God to work, or are we going to rely on our plans? Are we going to try to fix it ourselves? Or do we just kind of walk away and go like, well, I don't know. I used to go to that church, but they made a mess of things, and I don't know what's going on over there now. We have a choice to make, not just as a church family, but as individuals as well. As parents in conflict with our kids, in marriages, in work situations, in the face of health issues, when we're trying to wrestle with the brokenness in our extended families, I mean, there are just situation after situation where we have to make a choice. Are we going to lean in the direction of devotion or do we disconnect and drift away from God? I want to take just a couple of minutes here and give you some practical ideas about how you might move from disconnected to devoted. So I think at one point or another, you will find yourself kind of drifting in that direction And sometimes it can be daunting to get back on track with God. So the first thing is what we've called oftentimes in this series, inquiring of the Lord. I would say pray with your ears wide open. So not just ask God, but listen for the response, even if the answer is not the one you want. Isaiah 55, 3 says, come to me with your ears wide open. Listen, and you will find life. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. I will give you all the unfailing love I promised even to David. If you think about it, this is really, this is the heart of the gospel. This is what Jesus coming and laying down his life for us was all about. This is Jesus saying, come, all those who are weary, I will carry your burden for me, for you, if you entrust it to me. This is Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. This covenant that Jesus makes with us is if you will become my follower, if you let me be the leader and forgiver in your life, then I will wipe the slate clean with you and your heavenly Father. And I will walk with you every step of the way. It's no longer a question of what you can do on your own. It's you with my power at work in your life and through your life. So pray with your ears wide open. Secondly, look for God's perspective. What is it that God might be up to? Sometimes God is not up to making us comfortable. That may not be his highest priority. He may want us to learn something or to grow or to stretch our faith. What is it that he might want to see changed in my life? Look for God's perspective. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 is probably familiar to many of you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Look for God's perspective. Third, Allow God time and space to work on your behalf. As much as possible, try to give him room to operate in your life. Sometimes our situations are urgent. You've got to make a decision right now. But often, even if you're in a meeting, you can take, you know, 10 seconds under your breath and say, God, please help me know what to do here. Or over lunch, you could spend some time praying so that when you show up that meeting at 1 o'clock, you're geared up and you have spent time with God. Oftentimes we feel desperate, but to the degree that we can allow God the space to move and give him the invitation to come into a situation, we can live out our devotion to him. Fourth, seek out spiritual encouragers. So talk to somebody who's a spiritual encourager. For, for David, the obvious examples are Samuel and Jonathan and Abigail. They were key figures in his life who helped him stay on track with God. 
I don't know who those people are to you, but if you're struggling, if you feel like you're drifting, talk to somebody like that who can help you get back on track. Oftentimes, it's a small group leader or maybe, you know, Pastor Ed or somebody on staff. We'd be glad to talk to you about that. And then finally, reflect on God's proven faithfulness. So God has not ripped anyone off. You look in Scripture, and he has been faithful to his people throughout history. And if you look at your own life, if you walk with Christ, then you know he's been faithful to you. And sometimes in the face of uncertainty, it helps us to think about all the times that God has been faithful to us, all the times he's delivered us, and we rely on that. About 10 or 12 years ago, my wife and I started really, I mean, we've always probably been this way, but we had a couple of new cars throughout the years. 10 or 12 years ago, we became serious used car people. We had a couple of kids to get through college, and so we were very grateful that we had family members who kind of passed on cars to us with some useful life at a very reasonable cost, and we were really excited when Jill inherited her dad's pickup truck. It was probably 10 years old, had 140,000 miles on it, but it ran. It was good transportation. It gave us a way to kind of help people out hauling stuff. People would borrow it when they needed to make a move. It's been to youth camp probably four out of the last five summers because we could pile all the suitcases in the back. We have a a pet name for it, and if you want to know that, you can ask one of the teenagers. They can tell you. So it's been really useful to us. Most recently, it got us to Nashville for my daughter's wedding in March, pulling a trailer. We got back. No problems. It was awesome. We just crossed over 200,000 miles like in April. And it was like, woohoo! Take a picture of the odometer. You know, like, wow, God has been faithful. This has been such a blessing. And then the next month, inspection was due. I take it in and I get a call from the inspection station. They say, I've got good news and bad news. Okay, give me the good news. Well, it's going to cost four or $500 to get your car to pass inspection. Okay, give me the good news. No, that was the good news. The bad news is it's going to take about $3,000 to fix the couple of leaks that are going on and, and really get you on the road. Gulp. The truck's not worth anywhere near $3,000. So I think it was that day. Based on, we had a great uh, pastor when we were in seminary who, who spent a lot of time teaching about money and creative solutions and, and how we can give God room to work in situations. So I think it was that day I sent an email out to, I don't know how many people at Gateway, some outside of Gateway, mostly men, I think, guys that I knew, and I said, hey, our truck is dying, and we need to get just a beater, you know, to get back and forth to work. I don't care what it looks like. I'm looking for a car that runs, and that's cheap, and that would be serviceable for us. And I thought, you know, maybe somebody would know the grandma next door who needed to get rid of her, you know, car that's only been driven on Sundays, and that's what I was hoping for. And I got an email back from a guy at Gateway who said, hey, you know, I know a mechanic who's really good and he's inexpensive and if you need, I've got a vehicle you could borrow while you're letting him check it out. You want a second opinion? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, more information is always good. You know, I definitely would like to do that. So turns out his mechanic was able to do the $500 worth of repairs for like 250 bucks. Awesome. He also confirmed that it was going to take a lot of money to fix the leaks But he said, you know, have you ever tried stop leak? Some of you guys that are old-timers, that's been around for a long time. It's probably like jello when you stick it in your radiator and it gums everything up, but it doesn't leak anymore. So I went to Walmart and I got, you know, super sticky, deluxe, goopy stop leak and put it in there, and it doesn't leak and it's still running. And now we're, you know, like four months down the road, the truck's still running. It's given us a lot of time to kind of think about what do we want to replace it. It's given us some time to recover from the wedding. So we actually have a little bit of money now to put into a car. And then here's another thing that happened. Unbeknownst to me, I was looking for a used car on Craigslist, but somebody here at Gateway said, hey, I think we've got an opportunity to bless Alex. And I don't know if they passed a hat or a bucket or a shoe. I have no idea what it was, but it came back with a fairly substantial amount of money that was passed on to us. And if you threw in the bucket, thank you beyond the financial blessing that was. It was just really encouraging, and and it was a refreshing thing for us, you know, in a kind of crappy time. We were thinking, wow, you know, we got to find a trashy old car, and basically the note that came with it is like, hey, you could probably go up a level and just get one with like two off-color doors instead of four, you know, (laughs) or maybe the paint matches. I mean, dream big. So, If uh, I invite you to go on a cross-country trip and I'm driving the truck, you probably ought to decline. But 
as we say in Texas, I'm fixing to get another car. And so we're going to get another car, and we're in a much better position because we let God operate in that situation. And we got counsel from some other people who know more about that kind of stuff. And I know it's just a car. And in the big picture, you know, a car and a couple thousand bucks, that's chump change. But for me, it was a powerful reminder that when we lean in the direction of devotion, when we choose to do things God's way and we don't rely on just what we know or what we can come up with or how we could fix the problem, God often has a much better solution for us. And if we just rush in there and try to fix it ourselves or if we're comfortable drifting away from God, we miss out on that blessing. So I want to ask you guys to bow your heads. I'm going to pray for us. I want to give you a little bit of time to listen with ears wide open to God. I know some of you are wrestling with financial struggles. And some of you are facing health issues, either you or your family, and it's really scary. And I know that there are some who are in the middle of really troubling things going on in their family. Some of you may have just be struggling. You don't really know why, but you have drifted from God. And if that's you, um, I want to invite you to come down to the front after the service and pray with the prayer team if you want. But right now, would you just talk to God silently and listen for his voice? Heavenly Father, would you please speak to people in a voice they can hear in their heart? Would you draw them near? Encourage them. Give them hope. Help them to lean in the direction of devotion right now. God, I pray that you would intervene in a big way as people give you room and space and an invitation to be at work in their life. I pray that you would work in ways they can't imagine. I pray that your power would be evident, that you would pour encouragement and hope into their hearts, that you would give them wisdom to, to handle the situations they're facing, to, to resist the pressure that's on them, whether it's at work or at home or with their kids or their extended family their money. Rescue your people, Lord, as they depend on you. And I pray that you would help us to grow more and more devoted to you with each passing day. And I pray for your glory and for your honor that others may come to know you because of the choices that we make. And I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.